hope you have. I, I, I recognize sometimes you open and you're like, I don't know what this is saying. There's, there's a cultural, geographical, socio, uh, sociological gap that exists between us and the world of the Bible. Amen to that? And sometimes we're like, man, what's going on? But, you know, one of my burdens as a pastor is I want to make sure I'm, I'm being faithful to the whole of Scripture. And, and I want us to, to learn all of the Scripture. I want us to, to get through the Bible as a whole. I, I, I have these desires that one day uh, when, my, when God turns off the light on my life, that I can look back as a pastor and as a preacher and see, man, what, what did I teach on? And I hope and pray, I don't look back and say, hey, I taught a lot of the same things all the time. But, but instead, that I would have represented all the Bible because I want all of us here, Brooke family, to know the word from Genesis to Revelation. But I also know that when we do that, we're going to be encountering books and passages where we're like, okay, man, this is, this is a different context for me. Or maybe a passage like, this is hard to hear. And so part of us being faithful is saying, all right, God, this may be difficult, but we want to submit ourselves to your word and learn from that. And so what we see in the Bible are different books and genres of literature represented. Among those are a group of books called the prophets. The prophets were those messengers from God who came with a a particular word that God had given them to a particular people in a particular circumstance. The prophets are divided between major prophets and minor prophets. That doesn't mean more important and less important. It means bigger and smaller. The books are bigger for the major prophets and smaller for the minor prophets. All the prophets, as I mentioned to us last week, had a pretty difficult task. It's not easy standing up in front of somebody and saying, God has given me a word, this is what it is, and it might not be favorable for you. But that's what the prophets did. Among the prophets is a guy named Amos. Amos. The book of Amos is nine chapters, and my plan is to unpack it for you over the next four Sundays, and for God to give us an understanding of what this book of Amos has to offer. It reminds me of a time about four years ago when uh, I was speaking at a marriage conference with Erica, and we were in Lincoln, Nebraska, of all places. And during that conference, they had times where they separate the husbands and wives so we can have directed messages for those specific groups. And I was teaching the husbands about what it means to be a, a, a husband, a man of God. And, and we're just seeing what God has to say about that, seeing all the challenges that are coming to us from our culture, when in the middle of my message, the fire alarm went off in the ballroom of this hotel. Over 300 of us are there looking around like, okay, do we, what do we do here? Shortly after, an, an official came and said, hey, it was a false alarm, but the alarm kept going. And I'm thinking, this is extremely awkward because I don't know what to do. But, you know, every so often, God has those, like, beautiful lob pitches for you as a, as a preacher. Like, this is a home run pitch right here for you. Um, and as the as alarm went off, I thought, fellas, this is what God is doing for us right now. He's sounding the alarm on our lives. He's alerting us to what he's doing, and we can't deny it. The book of Amos is Amos sounding the alarm on God's people and in turn sounding the alarm on our lives. And what we see in these nine chapters, I'm going to be honest to you, is not easy. Even as I was reading this, Erica was reading it as well. And she's like, man, he really doesn't say anything really encouraging until about chapter five. So I'm like, yeah, it's going it's to be, be tricky. And the, the, the climax of the, chap, of the book happens in the final five verses of the book. The book's nine chapters. So all this to say... There's some hard stuff here. But again, I want to be faithful to God and his word. And I think 
Amos is sounding the alarm on us. And God has a message for us to hear. You want to hear this, family? Amos's message is one of justice. Amos is concerned about the injustices he sees in the land of Israel. When we think of justice, there are two components of it. There is one where the laws of our land are supposed to enforce justice by penalizing lawbreakers. And on the flip side, how the laws of the land should come alongside of the vulnerable and justly care for them. And we have these two sides of the same coin of justice. But it's interesting because sometimes we forget God is the one who establishes justice. God is the one who puts right law and right justice in order. You know, in our day and age, in our country, there's been a lot of talk about injustice, and I think rightfully so. But sometimes, as a pastor, what I hear is people telling other pastors that the church should not be involved with social justice issues. We need to just stick to the gospel. Just stick to preaching the word, preaching the cross of Jesus, but we sh- it's not our job to talk about matters of social injustice. You ever heard that? Maybe you've thought it. But I was thinking about this. If, if I were to obey that idea, I would have to cut out large portions of the Bible. The truth of the matter is, God cares deeply about social injustice. The book of Amos's nine chapters are about social injustice. And God's actually concerned about justice altogether because justice is a gospel issue. It's not that like we preach Jesus or we talk about so justice in our society. For us, that is a false dichotomy. Because a justice against humanity is a, an injustice against humanity is an injustice against God because humanity is made in God's image. In fact, it is the injustices of our world that aggravate God and provoke him to anger. In fact, it's the injustices of humanity that stand as an affront against God and has penalized us so that we then are cast off from God deserving of hell. At the cross of Jesus Christ is God's concern about justice, family. And so we then need to be those who are concerned about matters of injustice in our country and in our world. Human trafficking is prevalent in our world. It's unjust and evil. Mistreatment of vulnerable people, mistreatment of immigrant people is unjust and evil. Sexual abuse of children, the taking of the lives of unborn babies, misogynistic ideas that have prejudice against women because they're women, these are all unjust. Unfair wages and labor practices to those who have no recourse is unjust and evil. Racial profiling is evil. Food deserts that exist in our city because people don't want to go there because it's not economically advantageous for them is evil. Political gamesmanship for people to maintain power, though they are wicked, is evil. When the rich get richer and the poor get poorer because of our policies, there is evil there. Unjust practices. And the list goes on and on and on. You see, when we pervert justice, we provoke God. See, when our nation perverts justice, it provokes God, family. When our employer perverts justice, 
it provokes God. When a stranger or a family member or a person of authority perverts justice, that provokes God. When we ourselves pervert justice, that provokes God to act. God always will act, whether it be in a timing we expect or not, but his timing is perfect. He will respond. I saw a video recently of a man who was fishing out in the ocean, and he caught a large tarpon. This enormous fish. And he's wrestling this fish, pulling it in. You can see he's working hard. And just as, about the, as the fish is about to come to the boat, an enormous hammerhead shark comes out and just bites the fish and pulls it away. I mean, it was one of those things the guy was like, what just happened here? I was thinking about that. Injustice in our world is like that tarpon on the line. And God is there seeing it. Sometimes beneath the surface, we don't even know he's there. And it's like baiting God to say, do something about it. And God's like, I will respond. I will act. And the book of Amos is God saying, time is up, Israel. I'm tired of your practices. I'm tired of all you've done. I will execute justice because it is in keeping with my character. So if you're like me, I'm eager to open the book of Amos with y'all. Would you please turn there in your Bibles to the book of Amos, chapter 1. Amos chapter 1. As you're turning there, we're going to see how God's anger is kindled toward injustice. God's compassion is extended to the oppressed. Human injustices diminish the image of God and people, and all this provokes God to action. Would you stand with me if you are able to, and if you're at the book of Amos, chapter 1, there is a Bible there in a chair in front of you. Uh, If someone has the page number for that Bible, can you shout that out? Thank you very much. 764. If you don't own a Bible, please take the one in a chair in front of you home. It's our gift to you, because when the Bible speaks, God speaks, and we want you to hear from God. I'm going to jump around here in chapters 1 and 2 to introduce us to the book of Amos. I'll start reading the first two verses. The words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, when? Two years before the earthquake. And he said, the Lord roars from Zion, and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn, and the tops of Carmel withers. Look at verse 3. The Lord says, For three transgressions of Damascus, for four I will not revoke the punishment. I won't read that, but look at verse 6. Similarly, for three transgressions of Gaza. Verse 9, for three transgressions of Tyre. For three transgressions in verse 11 of Edom. Down to verse 13. For the three transgressions of the Ammonites and for four. Chapter 2, verse 1. For three transgressions of Moab and for four. God has a word for them. Then he comes in verse 4 of chapter 2. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Judah and for four I will not revoke the punishment. And then verse 6 of chapter 2. And this I'm going to read for you guys. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel... And for four, I will not revoke the punishment. Because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. 
those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. A man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. And in the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. Yet, it was I who destroyed the Amorites before them, whose height was like the heights of the cedars, and who was as strong as the oaks. I destroyed this, his fruit above, his, above and his roots beneath. Also, it was I, God speaking, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt and led you 40 years in the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorites. And I raised up some of your sons for prophets and some of your young men for Nazarites. Is it not indeed so, O people of Israel? declares the Lord. Verse 12. But you made the Nazarite drink wine and commanded the prophets, saying, You shall not prophesy. Behold, I will press you down in your place as a cart full of sheaves presses down. Flight shall perish from the swift, and the strong shall not retain his strength. Nor shall the mighty save his life. He who handles the bow shall not stand, and he who is swift of foot shall not save himself. Nor shall he who rides the horse save his life. And he who is stout of heart among the mighty shall flee away naked in that day. Jump down to verse 6 of chapter 3. Is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? For the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. The lion has roared. Who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken. Who can but prophesy? This is God's word for us. Let's pray. God, we feel the weight of Amos' words. We feel the weight of the tone that you speak, O oh God, to Amos, to your people. God, we stand here and are about to sit here taking the postures of learners, God. Asking, God, you would keep us humble. For we know, Lord, you oppose the proud, but give grace to the humble. And God, if we're honest, we need your grace. God, we, uh, we live in a society that's broken. And when we look in the mirror, we see men and women who is broken. And so, God, thank you that there is grace. I can't wait to get to that part of this sermon. <laughs> but before that, Lord, we've got to feel the weight of what weighs down on you. So give us ears to hear and give us eyes to see for the glory of your name. And all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. I'm going to give you some backdrop here before we get into the text. The Old Testament tells the story of God's redemptive plans to the nation of Israel. See, from the book of Genesis chapter 3 and onward, sin enters the world and all that God had planned in humanity takes a turn. And humanity, people like you and I are in dire need of redemption. God says, I'm going to redeem. I'm going to save the brokenness of people. I'm going to save you because of the sin in your life. I'm going to save you through a promise I'm going to give of one who's going to come who's going to deal with your sin problem. And then he passes that promise onto a people group and saying this promise will be fulfilled through one of your ancestors. And that people group God had chosen was what he calls the nation of Israel. 
And God constantly is like, I chose you not because of anything you've done. I mean, he humbles them real quick. It's not like you were good. I didn't pick you because you were cool. I picked you because I picked you, and I'm going to do my work through you. And he gives them this promise, and he also gives them the scriptures. And so God has given them this call to obey the scriptures, to long for the coming of this one, this Messiah, this deliverer, and to practice justice and live for God. So the nation ends up setting up a king named Saul, and then King David and his son Solomon, And then that nation divides in half from the northern kingdom of Israel to the southern kingdom of Judah. You still following me here, family? All right. The people of God, the nation of Israel, is divided in two when there's like a civil war. The northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah. Israel was a wicked nation always. They never had a righteous king. Judah had a few righteous kings, but they were pretty wicked too. The prophets are talking to these two nations of Israel and Judah saying, God has a word for you in your evil, telling you to turn away from it and repent. God sent some prophets to the southern kingdom of Judah, and he sent some prophets to the northern kingdom of Israel. You still with me? All right. Amos is a prophet to the northern kingdom of Israel, where there was not even one righteous king to ever reign on that throne. We look at Amos chapter 1, the word of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel. See that? That's the northern kingdom. In the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, that was the king of the southern kingdom. And in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, which is the northern kingdom. You still with me here? I know that's a lot. We're doing some history. I like history, and I hope you do too, all right? This is central and for us to understand what's going on here. Amos, it says, was a shepherd. Later on in chapter 7, verse 14, we also find that he was a vine dresser. All this to say, Amos was a pretty normal person. He was a regular old dude working his job, being faithful, just working hard. And from this point, God picks him to be a prophet to the nation of Israel. Now, I want to do a quick side note here. God is ready and eager and will use anyone who's going to be obedient to him. I hope you hear this. God will use anyone who's going to be obedient. And the way he knows if you're going to be obedient is if you are currently obedient. It's not like God's like, hey, you're really evil right now, but I'm going to choose you because I think you're going to start obeying me. No, I'm going to choose you for this message. God, God raises up prophets because they're faithful. There is Amos doing the work of God, just keeping the, the, the sheep, working this vine dressing stuff. He's just doing his normal work when God calls him. But what we then see is Amos is quick to obey what God puts on his heart. Amos goes to speak to the northern kingdom of Israel. It says he's from a city called Tekoa. The word Tekoa actually means to, to blow or to sound which is ironic because Amos is going to be sounding an alarm. Amos's name means burden or to carry a weight, and that's what he carries as he goes across the borderlines from Judah to Israel. Basically, Amos is stepping into foreign territory with a pretty hostile message. Who's going to sign up for that one? Yeah. So for this reason, we know that God had a radical call on Amos's life. Family, God places calls in our lives that are very radical and to the outside world look kind of crazy. But if you are prepared to be obedient, God is going to use you to do great things for his kingdom. And it may not always be received by people. It may not always be received. But God is calling you to be faithful. And that's what Amos is doing. It says that he, met, he, he begins his ministry and starts preaching two years before the earthquake. That's the only detail given to us before the earthquake. And if you're like me, I'm asking, well, what earthquake? 
Well, think about it. If I'm here in Chicago saying, this happened two years before Katrina, it's not like you guys are going to be like, well, well, what's Katrina? All of us know what Katrina is. All of us know when something hits our nation that is so profound, it's unmistakable. The earthquake needed no description. People knew about the earthquake. And it's important that it's mentioned here that this message is preached two years before the earthquake because part of Amos's message is like, hey, God's going to come and judge his people for being unjust, and he's going to show it by bringing an earthquake. So two years later, when the earthquake comes, what does that do for Amos's message? It validates it. It validates his message. And so here he sets it up in verse 1, and he says, okay, what was God's message? You see, I think it's important for us, a side note here, to know that God uses natural disaster to say something. Now, this is not very popular in our day because we are too, uh, too informed for these understandings. God doesn't work like we work. God uses natural disaster. Now, it doesn't mean that we always understand what he's saying, but we do not understand, need to understand he is saying something. He uses a flood to say something in the days of Noah. He uses a famine to say something in the days of Joseph. He uses hail to say something in the days of Egypt. He uses lightning and thunder to say something on Mount Sinai. And he uses a storm to say something to Jonah in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. And here he uses an earthquake. God speaks even through natural disaster, even if we don't know what he's saying. I think that alone tells us, hey, listen in. Lean in closely to the heart of God. What is God saying through the book of Amos here? In chapter 1, verse 2, it says, The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. It's using the image of a lion. Lions roar as a, as a show of power. Lions roar to make a statement. God is roaring to show his power and make a statement. What's the statement he's about to make? Well, he makes seven statements here in the chapters that follow here to seven different groups of peoples. I showed you Damascus, Gaza, Tyre, Edom, the Ammonites, the Moabites, and to Judah. Seven is the number of perfection in the Bible. It's a completion. And so here, Amos first has a message for nations surrounding God's people. Now, this is a lot of, I know, very detailed, but this is important. Because here we are to understand now, what is God's problem with the nations around Israel? And look what he says to Damascus in verse 3. He says, I got three trans, uh, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. This is a figure of speech. It's a literary device saying, hey, you've done three things, and yet the fourth one is what put me over the edge. It's kind of what God is saying. And what he goes on to do is list that fourth thing and not the previous three. He says, because, in verse 3, they have threshed Gilead with threshing sledges of iron. Gilead is a land where the people of Israel lived. And it says they have threshed the people or the land with threshing sledges of iron. You see, a threshing sledge was a farmer's tool to break up the ground when it was hard and and dried up. And this threshing sledge would go through it, led by an ox, and it would break it up. Here it says it threshes Gilead with this threshing sledge. And what commentators believe that is possible here is that what these people did was they lined up the people on the ground and drove a sledge, an iron threshing sledge over them to cut up their bodies while they were alive. This is pretty wicked stuff. And God is like, 
This is evil. This is unjust. This aggravates me. This angers me. And for this reason, God says in verse 4, I will send fire upon them, which typically is codenamed for, I'm bringing another army in. They're going to conquer you. They're going to set your city on fire. Damascus is not doing what God wants them to do. That's the capital city of Syria. And then in verse 6, we see Gaza, which is a city in Philistia, where the Philistines lived. What was the problem that they did? Verse 6, because they carried into exile a whole people to deliver them up to Edom. They were practicing slavery. They took people and they sold them to other nations. God's like, that's not okay with me. That's an unjust, evil practice. It, it devalues people's worth. I got problems with you, Gaza. That's the second nation. Third one, Tyre, which is a city in Phoenicia for the Phoenicians. What did they do in verse 9? They delivered up a whole people to Edom and did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. So not only did they sell people as slaves, but they also broke peace treaties to do so. God's like, that's unjust, that's evil, you will be punished for it. In verse 11, the Edomites, what did they do? He says, you pursued your brother with the sword and cast off all pity, and his anger tore perpetually, and he kept his wrath forever. God's like, you peoples of Edom showed no mercy. You just had fits of rage with no compassion. And for that reason, I will bring judgment upon you. Look in verse 13 to the Ammonites. What have they done? He says, because they have ripped open pregnant women in Gilead, that they might enlarge their borders. They are killing unborn children to increase their space. Basically, they're trying to kill off a people group by killing off the babies so that they can then take over the land where those people lived. God has a bone to pick with such practices. I do want to pause here briefly because I think all of us can see a pretty clear connection to our country. Family, we know that our country allows for abortions to take place, the killing of unborn babies. And I know and I imagine, I know many in this room who have experienced the pains of abortion. We know that some of you have chosen to have abortions or have encouraged others to do so. And I want you to know, as I do every time I bring up this topic, that God is a God of who heals. God is a God who restores the choices we made. And he can bring redemption and life. I want you to know that and hear it loud and clear. There is healing and hope for you. There is healing and hope for you because of Jesus. But we also need to know that God is not okay with such practices. In our country, since Roe v. Wade, there's been some 50 million abortions. And in many ways, it's not all that different from what we see among the Ammonites. Family, we must plead the cause of the vulnerable and stand up for justice. God is looking at the Ammonites and saying, you're doing wrong. You're doing evil. I'm going to come and bring fire. To the Moabites in verse 2, he says this about them in chapter 2, verse 1, I'm sorry. You have burned to lime the bones of the king of Edom. Now, you didn't even respect the dead, basically, God is saying. Your wickedness and hatred is so deep, I'm coming to bring judgment. And then the seventh nation he mentions is Judah in chapter 2, verse 4. 
He says, because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his statutes, because, but their lies have led them astray, those after which their fathers walked. So I will send fire upon Judah. That's the southern kingdom. See, God is speaking to seven nations here. Seven peoples, different peoples, who he's seeing injustice running rampant, unchecked. The devaluing of human life. The proliferation of hatred and evil for different people's groups other than their own. This is what God is upset with. God cares about injustice, family. And so he mentions these seven nations. But remember here, I told you that Amos is a prophet to the northern kingdom of Israel. But up to this point, seven peoples have been mentioned, and the seventh one being the southern kingdom of Judah. And no doubt Israel's like, get them, God. Those bad neighbors around us, get them, God. And when they hear the seventh one mentioned, I mentioned the number seven is the number of completion in the Bible. So as Amos is speaking, the people of Israel in their own evil are probably thinking, whew, we got away on that one. See, but what God does here in a literary way, he's bringing something around the corner for them. He says, for three transgressions, for four, I'm bringing judgment on these nations. Only mentioning a fourth, but God's like, you know what? I gave you seven nations here, but I'm not done yet. I've mentioned one sin of peoples, but I'm not done yet. Because there is yet still a nation, a people group, who is doing injustice far exceeding these ones here. And there we see in chapter 2, verse 6, Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel, and for four I will not revoke the punishment. Just as God's people thought they came out clean, though they were wicked, God's like, I'm not done. I've got a message for you. Something I forgot to mention earlier is in the days of Uzziah and Jeroboam when Amos prophesied, the nation of Israel and Judah actually were experiencing great prosperity. I mean, they were, they were like killing it from a financial standpoint. They had beds in their houses. Now, that's not too odd for us. But in that culture, that's not what happened. People didn't have beds. And then it tells us in chapter 3, verse 12, they were inlaid with ivory their bedpost. Like, this stuff was bougie, family. In fact, I saw the most expensive mattress on the market is $59,000. Yeah, pretty amazing. It's made of cashmere, flax, silk, all these things. The people of Israel were living this kind of lavishness. They had two houses, a winter house and a summer house. That's not too rare in our day, but that was rare then. They had wealth. They had expensive furniture. It says in chapter 6, verse 6, that they had bowls full of wine, had their fill. They had the finest lotions. Israel was leading a prosperous life. L listen here, family. Israel was a prosperous nation, and God was displeased with them. Prosperity in a nation does not equate God's blessing on a nation. Hear this. Just because a nation is thriving doesn't mean God's pleased with them. When you look at someone who's wealthy, don't say God must be blessing them. That's not necessarily true. The people of Israel were not pleasing God. He's angry with them, in fact. Their perversion of justice has provoked him to anger, not provoked him to bless them more. Prosperity does not equate blessing. And so here, God's like, here's my problem with you, Israel. I mentioned just the fourth problem for all of them. Guess what? 
I'm going to tell you all that you're doing. I'm going to give you all four of them. The first thing you're doing, you excel in injustice. You're like professional unjust people. You're pros at it. Look what he says in verse 6. You sell righteous people for silver, the needy for a pair of sandals. You exploit vulnerable people to promote your own desires. You get rich off of the poor. You excel in injustice. Just so we remember here, this is not just a message Amos is giving out of the blue here. Because in the days of Moses, Moses tells the people of the Lord, he says, that God executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, the immigrant, giving him food and clothing. And then Moses says, love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners once in the land of Egypt. This is not a new message Amos is giving. Or in Isaiah 117, Isaiah says, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Or Proverbs 14, whoever oppresses the poor insults his maker. This is what God has to say about it. Micah 6, 8, he has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness or mercy? These are not foreign concepts in the Bible that Amos is bringing. But sometimes we want to hear what we want to hear. And Amos is like, you guys are not hearing right. You are excelling in injustice. You are pros at wickedness. But in in, in verse 7, he says, not only that, you trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. He says, a man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. This girl is not probably the mother of the son or the wife of the, of the dad. See, they are no doubt practicing sexual slavery of sorts, perhaps prostitution. They were, they were the kind of things that Israel is exploiting vulnerable people. Those who are enslaved, by the way, in the prostitution are not doing so because that's what they want to do with their lives. There are structures that have placed them there and people who hold power over them. And God's like, Israel, you do this and you profane my name because that girl is made in my image. That's the second sin of Israel. The third one in verse 8, you extort people for financial gain. You don't care what they're going through as long as you're making a dime off of them. He says, they lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. They took people's garments as, as, as to hold it against them. And in the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who've been fined. So they're fining people, taking bribes, and using that money to get drunk off of this, these wages. The message translation says it like this. Stuff they've extorted from the poor is piled up at the shrine of their God. While they sit around drinking wine, they've conned, uh, while they sit around drinking wine, they've conned from their victims. God's like, I'm not okay with your evil, O people in my land. For three things, I will bring judgment even for a fourth. And what is that fourth? We'll look at verse 12. God says, but you made the Nazarite drink wine and commanded the prophets, saying, you shall not prophesy. The people of Israel tried to silence God. Nazarites were a group of people that God had called and set them apart. 
there are those who made a vow not to cut their hair, not to drink wine. It was just something that they chose to do in order to follow God with more devotion and clarity. One of the most famous Nazarites in the Bible is Samson. That's where his strength came from, his hair. He had a Nazarite vow, and of course he broke all his vows because he was a wicked dude. But nonetheless, this is what Nazarites did because they wanted to be devoted to God. Prophets received a message from God to speak. And so God's like, look, Israel, you're trying to silence my voice. That is a display of wickedness. And for these reasons and these injustices, I'm coming. But listen up, family. We cannot silence God. The lion will roar. And as it says there in chapter 3, verse 8, the lion has roared, who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken. Who can but prophesy? Amos is like, God has given me a message. I can't keep it silent. I've got to say what God is saying, even though it's difficult. The message is God is just, and he will judge injustice. God has a bone to pick with those who pervert justice, family. When I think about this, it's not a difficult correlation to then look at the, my own life and how I sin against God and I have per, personally practiced unjust ways and unjust thoughts and evil in my heart. And I know you have too. You know how I know that? Because I know you. And I know what God has to say about us. So how does a just God... Get unjust people off the hook. I mean, let this sink in. Israel is doing evil just like the seven nations around them. And God's like, I'm bringing fire. And if God were to look at us, he's like, you're doing evil and I am just. Therefore, I cannot let injustice and evil go unpunished. Remember, that's why I said justice is. There's two sides of that coin. One is to punish evil, and the other one is to protect the vulnerable. Those are just practices. God's like, I'm just. You're evil. Therefore, you should be punished. Family, let this sink in. We are on the hook apart from what happens some thousand years after this message, 700 years. Because what happens is God realizes that we've got a problem. And our sin is ever before us. And rather than sending a prophet, he sends his own son to stand in our place so that at the cross of Jesus, God does punish our sin and our injustice and our evil. But Jesus takes it for us. I don't think you heard me, family, because that deserves a big amen, family. At the cross of Jesus... Jesus took the punishment you and I deserve for the sin in our lives. Justice has been paid. God remains just because he has punished and he found a way so that you and I don't have to be the recipients of that punishment. When we put our faith in Jesus, God says, you are forgiven because of what my son has done for you. You don't have to pay for your own sins. God has done it for you. That is good news, family. As William Googe, an old pastor, said, we see how in the working out of redemption, divine grace and justice meet together at the cross and sweetly kiss each other. God shows his grace at the cross. He shows his justice. They kiss, and we find eternal life. This is good news. 
God has found a way to spare us. Family, in our day, we need to get this message across to others. Because God's anger is kindled toward injustice. It does provoke him to action. And he does have compassion on those who are the recipients of injustice, on the vulnerable. The book of Amos is a tough book, family. And these messages are not the squeaky, easy kind of ones. But what it is, is a message we need to hear if we're going to be faithful to God. Throughout the next few weeks, we're going to unpack how God continues to unfold this message and brings it into a crescendo at the very end with hope. But in order to get there, we've got to feel the weight of the message. So I thought about the book of Amos. You guys know I like to write poetry. So I put the book of Amos into a, a spoken word. I'm going to share that with you guys. Half of it's going to make sense because I just talked about it. The rest of it should make sense in four weeks. And if none of it makes sense, I've failed you miserably. God's message, though, to, to, to his people is repent, or I'm saying another nation to judge you. But this is what his message leads into for Amos. He was a simple man to call his city Amos his name. He simply cared for sheep and picked figs the same. One day, he envisioned a vision and then proclaimed the proclamation of the judgment from the judge upon nation and nation. The number of nations was complete like seven. Then one was added and spread to eight like leaven. The eighth was Israel, who was safe and secure, securely unjust, securely unnerved. By the various atrocities King Jeroboam dispersed, undeserved was the pain of the poor and injured. Absurd Israelites induced the Nazarite to break his vow, reflecting the folly of placing an ox in the lake to plow. Renowned was their idolatry, it never caused a frown. Their crown, was, which was oppression, became their name like a noun. But check out the plumb line. Is it straight like a T-square? No. It was out of balance like a checkbook, a spender's nightmare. Watch Israel move from health to intensive care. When the rare earthquake hits, validating Amos' despair. We'll follow, repair, impossible. Soon their capital will lay bare like a fossil. Foolish rebukes by Amaziah yields panic in Samaria. No surprise beyond Damascus will arise Assyria. In exile they will carry you to the area of Nineveh. The end has come for my people, no longer will I spare you. Believe it will be, 722 B.C. God's judgment unavoidable, so goes Amos 9, 2. Though they dig to Sheol, from there I will take them. Though they ascend to heaven, from there I will bring them. But wait, the Lord's not finished, his work's not done. He will again raise up David's house as he raises the sun. It's his raised son who raises the one who seeks me and lives as the 5-6 inclusion. Amos' prophecy speaks to us in century 21 that God's into real estate building his heavenly kingdom. He has purchased your property, so let him plant your feet in the land. For before him you'll be when your hourglass is out of sand. This is the message God has for Amos and the message he has for us. That's the awkward clap there. Go for it. You see, God is stirred when he sees the vulnerable taken advantage of and his image bearers 
abused. And he's got a simple message that interweaves in the later chapters. And we can sum it up with one word, and it's repent. Come back to me, God tells his people. Seek me and live. He says, has not God, in chapter 3, verse 7, for the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. What Amos is saying and what the book of Amos does is basically God sounding the alarm. He said, I'm not okay with these things. I'm sending my prophet to speak to you as he sent his word to us here, Brooke family, and to our nation. Family, let's be the people who carry the same passions our God cares about. Let's care about the vulnerable, because God does. Let's care about justice, because God does. And let's care about the image of God in us, because God does. Let's pray, family. Father, we thank you, Lord, for the message of Amos. And God, we thank you, God, that um, your word does speak and is relevant as today, today as it has been thousands of years ago. God, I, I pray that we would be the kind of people who care about what you care about and have a rooted biblical view of those things, God. God, we pray for our nation where many injustices reign. We pray for our city that's going through the same things. God, I pray that we would be the voice of truth and share the hope of Jesus, especially to those who are broken and downcast. God, be glorified in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand up, church families. We sing our closing song here. Uh, prayer team, I do want to invite you to come forward. And if God